0: From the hills of central New York, and in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. My guest for his return engagement on Frankly Speaking is Assistant Professor Paul Koch at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Paul's been a regular guest talking about winter disease issues, the use of the environmental impact quotient, and his growing interest in the use of predictive models for determining the efficient use of pesticides for disease control on fine golf turf. We start our conversation with the 2018 growing season and the challenges that that presented for turfgrass managers in the northern Midwest. Paul Koch, welcome to Frankly Speaking. Thanks again for taking the time to join me. We're here. It's sort of at the uh, well. What we hope is the end of the 2018 growing season as we enter the uh, Labor Day period, when a lot of people are sort of wrapping it up for the growing season. Paul, how would you summarize the 2018 growing season? It's
1: been diseasy, Frank. I mean, I think <laughs> soft good salesmen are are loving it this year. There's been uh, there's been a hell of a lot of disease. It's been humid. I wouldn't say. In the Midwest, it's been brutally hot, but it's just been it's just been continuously humid for you know a couple of months. Normally we have breaks where we have some overnight lows down into the you know mid fifties or so and allow us to collect ourselves, but we haven't had those breaks this year. So we're seeing a lot of brown patch, you know, ton of dollar spot. We actually had some relatively significant pythium outbreaks in Wisconsin on fairways this year, which we don't we don't wow. see. I probably haven't seen that in a good four or five years. So there's been uh, been plenty of disease. It's been a long summer for everybody growing grass. We're ready for fall.
0: And, you know, it's so interesting because oftentimes people associate uh, more disease pressure uh, with higher temperatures, Paul. But what I think I've noticed, and it sounds like you're uh, saying as well, that when you've got so much moisture in that system, that that tends to override everything. Uh, Pythium blight in the fairways?
1: Yep, definitely. I mean, I would, I would, I would say that, uh, you know, some fungi like kind of hot and wet conditions, some fungi like cool and wet conditions, but almost all fungi need moisture. Mm-hmm. And so, anytime we have wet conditions, it can override sort of when you wouldn't think you would see a particular disease. I was surprised that we saw the Pythium blight that we had uh, a few weeks ago, but you know, looking back on it, it was wet, it was humid for. For weeks on end, I think that's what led to the development.
0: And it wasn't seedling turf. It was mature uh, bentgrass turf, bent poa turf.
1: It was years and years old mixes of bent poa. So
0: So when you say, uh, you know, sarcastically, I know that the soft goods salesmen are doing fairly well. I'm assuming that one of the byproducts of all that moisture is that your uh, fungicides are not lasting their uh, prescribed intervals.
1: You know, it's an interesting point about the fungicide intervals. What we think and what some small studies have found is that fungicides, for the most part, last in the environment 7 to 12, 13 days, whether they're, you know, emerald or whether they're daconil. But you get a difference in uh, length of control. Obviously, you know, 21 to 28 days with emerald, 7 to 14 days with daconil. So the reason you have those differences in length of control, most likely, is that you're having a differential impact on the fungus. So, you know, you would apply emerald, you would expect it to take about 28 days for that fungal population to recover and be able to cause symptoms again. So if you have really conducive, warm, wet, humid conditions, the fungus is going to be able to bounce back. It's going to be able to grow faster. It's going to be able to colonize and infect the plant faster after that fungicide application. So, yeah, probably we would see more often breaks through that uh, that reapplication interval. And that's why, you know, a lot of times under these really conducive conditions, we say tighten up that interval, shorten it up a couple of days.
0: So when we look at uh, a more data-driven approach to managing diseases, Paul, and you talk about intervals and you talk about the moisture levels, you know, you've just published this paper validating the Smith-Kerns model. You and the young pathologists, I call all you guys now, just published this validation How does the model do in a year like this? Did it basically get to a 20 to 30 percent risk and stay there? And maybe let's back up for a second for those listeners who might not be as savvy on what we're talking about. Take a minute and describe the predictive model you just validated, and then we'll talk about how it showed up this year.
1: Yeah, definitely. So the Smith-Kerns Dollar Spot model, it's a new predictive model for Dollar Spot, just uses a five-day moving average of uh, daily average air temperature and daily average relative humidity, produces just a quantitative number, produces a percent probability that Dollar Spot will occur. From some of our research, we have found that a 20% threshold is a a pretty good starting point for a threshold to use. So anytime that model goes above 20% and you don't have fungicide protection out, That'd be a good time to have uh, to put out a, a fungicide. But what we do know is that depending on the conditions at each individual golf course is going to dictate what the spray threshold will be. So we did our our work on Penn Cross out in the open at our research station. We validated that number at other sites around the country. But if you uh, if you have, you know, declaration or memorial or a more resistant bentgrass cultivar, you're going to be able to increase that threshold. And, and Bruce Clark at Rutgers has shown that they're working with the model on different cultivars. And they've shown that under different conditions, different uh, hosts different nitrogen regimes you're going to be able to change that spray threshold around so really one of the benefits i think of the model is that it just provides sort of a quantitative aspect of what dollar spot activity should be and then each course can adapt that number to what works for their course kind of like the the use of the tdr probe with a wilt point every course has a different wilt point right nobody says Mm -hmm. always water when you're below 20 percent with your vwc they say Track it, see when you start to have wilt at your course, and then use that as your wilt point. Same thing with the Smith-Kerns model. Use the percentage. Uh, when you start to see dollar spot at, at your course, that's your percentage. That's when you spray.
0: So when you look at your model just at the, at the 20% uh, range and you look over the course of the 2018 season, I got to believe there were significant – I mean, if you did an area under the Smith-Kearns progress <laughs> curve, uh, you'd have a fair amount of area under that. Do you do any of that stuff, Paul, to look at actually quantifying the the amount of uh, pressure that you're under using the risk model?
1: Yeah, we haven't done any area under the curve measurements yet. That's a good idea. We can easily go back and uh, do that kind of to compare year – year, but you're right. This year's been a really, really heavy dollar spot pressure year. I would say we we, we first went above 20% in Madison, probably somewhere near the second part of May. Then it dropped back down in the first part of June, below 20%. And then since probably about June 10th or so, we've been above 20%. And I would say if Madison's above 20%, most of the country's been above 20% Mm. since probably early to mid-June at the latest. Mm. And so then basically from that point until now, we've been above 20%. And so you're basically on a calendar-based program. What we found from past years, though, is the real benefit of using this model is in the shoulder parts of the season. So in your spring applications and definitely in your fall applications, that's where we see the potential savings. When we tested the model in 2015 versus 2016, we only saved one application in 2016. 16 but three applications in 2015 the reason for that is we had a much warmer more humid fall in 2016 relative to 2015 so really coming up over the next couple of months when sort of you're on the fence about spraying for dollar spot that's where the model can really save you some save you some apps
0: well thanks for bringing up the fall dollar spot it's very timely because i'd have to say i'm old enough to remember when we didn't fuss about dollar spot in the fall and if we had it it was probably being picked up by something else Uh, we were applying at that time. So what is your sense of how the fall dollar spot behaves uh, relative to the dollar spot we see over the course of the season? Do you notice a difference in the dollar spot onset in the fall, Paul?
1: Oh yeah, definitely. There's been, you know, there's just been more and more interesting or unique or weird finds about dollar spot in the fall seems to be a little more aggressive, seems to pit out a little easier than, or a little more uh, than the dollar spot does in the summer. There's kind of two lines of thinking. One, it could be environmental. You know, you have longer nighttime periods, so longer periods of, of leaf wetness. You don't get as hot during the day, so you maybe have a longer period of time uh, each day that you're in that optimal range. That leads to increased uh, aggressiveness of the pathogen. Also could be some sort of genetics or different strains of dollar spot in the fall. You know, they've, there's been some really interesting Work. I don't know if they've published it or not, but just talking with, you know, Bruce Clark and Jim Murphy down at Rutgers and some others, it appears that certain bentgrass cultivars are really resistant to dollar spot during the summer, but then break down during the fall. And then others are vice versa. Others break down during the summer, but then are resistant during the fall. Yeah. So, you know, just some really interesting things going on with fall dollar spot. I think that's a really ripe area for for some research.
0: So Paul, when you have a tough growing season like this, and especially with excessive moisture, one of the things we notice back East, even without the high temperatures is the, 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 uh, the way it exposes weaknesses in an infrastructure, particularly surface organic matter. Uh, I I know you have the TDL there and Kurt uh, is running that. And I know you probably keep track of the samples that coming in, did this wet year expose a lot of weaknesses in uh, the way uh, people are managing the surface organic matter in their putting surfaces?
1: Yeah, so it, it's interesting. Back in June, we had we had a lot of rain as well. Then we kind of dry out for a bit, and then it's been really wet lately. But back in June, we had some really wet periods, and we had a lot of Pythium root rot. We don't normally see a lot of Pythium root rot, but we had a lot of moisture in certain parts of Southern Wisconsin and Northern Illinois and and sort of the Iowa, Eastern Iowa area. And what we found is that most of those pithium root rot areas were either in areas that had poor surface drainage, so they kind of, the water collected there, or there was just an area of excessive organic matter, excessive thatch, you know, whatever you wanna wanna call it. But certainly uh, too much organic matter, poor water movement uh, near the surface is gonna trap water. And it doesn't take a whole lot of trapped water when you get uh, when you get some of these rains to lead to uh, some pretty aggressive pythium root rot, which again, for for the upper Midwest, not a disease we often see. So we did see quite a bit of it back then.
0: You know, a few years ago, uh, John Kaminsky reported uh, in, in his travels this uh, aggressive or this different pythium that he saw taking out turf. And I believe he ultimately concluded it was some pythium species that weren't picked up by phosphites. How much of the pythium either in the root zone or the blight you think might be related to how we've become more dependent on phosphites and not maybe making the regular pythium maps we did uh, five, 10 years ago?
1: Yeah, well, so I mean, phosphites are, are pretty effective uh, pythium materials for the most part, but they're not great, right? We we, we know that phosphites break down under, under heavy pressure. So in most cases in, in the upper Midwest, I would say probably 90% of the time, Phosphites are effective at suppressing pythium, but if you get really, really conducive conditions, that's going to break down. So I mean, I, I probably haven't made a subdue recommendation in a number of years in Wisconsin just because we don't normally have those conditions. Probably, you know, a few weeks ago that might have been a good recommendation to make. But yeah, I think I think we've become reliant on on phosphites, and when we have those really conducive conditions, sometimes sometimes those break down definitely.
0: We are just getting started here on Frankly Speaking, Assistant Professor Paul Koch at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. We'll be right back.
2: Finally, a fungicide that's so much more. Civitas Turf Defense is a fungicide, insecticide, and plant protection product that will change the way you look at turf management. Civitas Turf Defense works within the plant to control diseases and pests, reducing requirements for fertilizers and other pesticides. By enhancing stress tolerance, Civitas Turf Defense can reduce water inputs by up to 25% while maintaining acceptable turf quality. Civitas also increases abiotic stress tolerance for improved tolerance to wear and traffic. And with no known resistance issues, there's no worry about maximum yearly application restrictions. Civitas Turf Defense, plant protection redefined. There's more to the story. Visit civitasturf.com.
0: Well, Paul, listen, we had an excellent conversation there about the 18 growing season and that insight you provide in those areas, I think, is exactly why, you know, we get those five people that keep listening to, frankly speaking, uh, you know, day, week after week <laughs> that we put these out. I want to switch gears a little bit and focus a little more on the chemicals that we use. And and uh, you and I have both uh, developed some expertise and interest in using the environmental impact quotient as a a data mining tool or as a way of at least evaluating the potential risk of the chemicals that we use. I know you've developed uh, pretty significant expertise in toxicology over the years. I I know you you do attend some of these toxicological scientific meetings around uh, pesticide chemistry and toxicology, which is something we need more discussions about, particularly with the recent Roundup ruling and what's going to ensue from that. Talk for a minute about this uh, environmental impact quotient and the common ground initiative that you have been working on in Wisconsin for the last several years.
1: Yeah. So, I mean... I uh, you're right. I do have some background in toxicology. I certainly would not call myself a toxicologist by any stretch, but I did have a focus minor during my Ph.D. And I'm currently affiliated with our molecular and environmental toxicology center here at UW. So, you know, a lot of what our work does, you know, obviously we do a lot of pathology work. We also do a lot of sort of pesticide impact work and and work towards reducing the non-target impacts of our pesticide program so you know environmental impact quotient is a tool for assessing the the impact of various uh pesticides not just in turf it's one of several models that you can use i know there's been some negative commentary on the environmental impact quotient And uh, every model that uh, anybody uses is going to have some drawbacks. I still think the EIQ is uh, useful for comparing synthetic uh, pesticides head to head. Where it kind of falls apart is when you try to sort of include other sort of alternative types of pesticides like oils or something like that, where you use heavy amounts of them. They don't really match up well when you try to use environmental impact quotient. But really, the bottom line is that there are differences in the pesticides that we use. Some of them have higher non-target environmental or human health impacts. Others have lower uh, environmental or human health impacts. And so really what some of our outreach is trying to do is provide incentive for turf managers, golf course superintendents to move towards those lower impact products, whether it's using a model through EIQ, or others using others as well. We've looked at pesticide risk tool, we've looked at hazard quotient, just as ways to assess the impact of these of these products. And so what we're doing in Wisconsin is we're, we're starting up an initiative that we're calling the Common Ground Initiative. And what it's trying to do is assess sort of where we are now, what is sort of the baseline for the average environmental impact in the state of Wisconsin on you know, on uh, different sectors of the turf grass industry? And then what are some paths forward for reducing that impact? Now, one thing that's important to note is that reducing the impact does not necessarily mean reducing the amount of fungicide or the number of fungicide applications that you make. It's simply trying to transition away from some of maybe the older, heavier impact products towards some of the newer, more modern, lower impact products. So we're trying to provide a structure incentive for our clientele to do that here in Wisconsin.
0: We have been working with this for a while with our state park golf course guys, and there are many across the country and around the world that use this on their own. The models are freely available online. The chemicals are there. So the more and more guys use it, my sense is the more they figure out what use it serves for them. I've liked it as communicating the message out And also determining where your risk is in your pest management program. For example, in our state park work, we see about 40% of our risk is tied up in dollar spot treatments and treatment for annual bluegrass weevil. So when we look at the way we move forward as an industry, continuing to focus on strategies like the Smith-Kerns model to allow us to reduce our, you know, use of fungicides for a dollar spot is how you use the EIQ ultimately to adjust your behavior. Now, you just released a really nice website for pest control where you can put in uh, various pests and get uh, recommendations for the products that work there. I think it integrates the efficacy work from Vincelli a little bit. Does it include the EIQ, Paul? No.
1: So, yeah. So that website is turfpest.wisc.edu. And yeah, so it has fungicides, herbicides and insecticides. The fungicide ratings are the ratings from the Vincelli uh, document that comes out. Every year, and then the herbicide ratings are the ones from Aaron Patton's document at Purdue. Right now, it does not include EIQ. Uh, we're always looking for new things to add to that, and that's uh, that's certainly one thing that we might add on to give people an easy way to compare products head to head.
0: So the advent of you know moving the Vincelli Clark thing online, you know you have the Smith Kerns model, and I believe Bill has incorporated the Smith Kerns model into the Greenkeeper app, if I'm not mistaken.
1: That is correct. Uh, Smith-Kern's model is on Greenkeeper app. It's also on GDD Tracker, uh, the website for Michigan State. There's also more information on our Turfgrass Diagnosis Labs website under Disease Resources. And anybody else that starts using the model for whatever application they want, they can let us know. We'll link to it on that Dollar Spot model homepage.
0: Crystal ball time, Professor Koch. How do you see... The use of data uh, expanding. We've already talked a little bit about intervals and, and risk predictions. How do you see the use of data in pathology uh, expanding over the next five to 10 years, Paul? Well,
1: I'll give you one example of an area that that we're working on. So we have our Smith-Kermers model. We're pretty comfortable in how it works. And right now, you know, we would recommend that you use that, that one number for your course to make the applications over the entire course. But one thing that we're looking at moving forward is we're working with the USGA. We're working a little bit with Toro on being able to measure dollar spot pressure on site-specific areas around the golf course. One reason I think that models, disease predictive models in general, have not been that effective or widely used in turf uh, compared to in ag, where they're relatively widely used, is that we have a ton of different little microclimates on the golf course. Right? You got a grain down in a hole surrounded by trees. You got a tee up, and up in an exposed area all these little different microclimates are all gonna have different little areas of differential levels of disease pressure. So one thing we wanna do then is take the Smith-Kearns dollar spot model and apply it to specific areas of the golf course. And we've been trying to collect some preliminary data on our university golf course here at the University of Wisconsin. And, and you know, say the back nine is a more tree enclosed area, we would expect pressure to be higher there. So we have a station that just measures it on, on that hole. And then there's a there's another station on the front line, more open, kind of a prairie style part of the golf course. And we have another station there that just measures the Smith Kearns model there. And then hopefully with some advances in technology, you would be able to pinpoint where on the golf course you're having dollar spot pressure. And then we would also need some advances in how we spray hmm. to be able to spray low volumes, to be able to spray small areas, because nobody's gonna go fill up the, the tank to go spray, you know, a couple of acres of fairways. But I think moving forward, With the data that we can collect, we can pinpoint specific areas of the golf course that would need protection, and we could provide the protection to just those areas of the golf course, rather than every time we spray, we spray all 30 acres, and maybe only a third or a quarter of that acreage needs protection.
0: That's correct, based on the risk model, and that's where even if you are going to mix up a whole tank... When you go out, if you could at least use variable rate applications versus what I see a lot of the GPS sprayers being used for now, Paul, just on and off, so the variable rate technology is going to be an improvement, but I'm really pleased to hear you sort of intimate the sort of low volume or direct injection sprayer where you go out with a tank of water and your jockey tanks on the side, have your active ingredients and those are injected right at the nozzle at whatever rate you want. That's really the Holy grail for being able to, treat low volume stuff, is that widely used in ag still, that direct injection technology to your knowledge?
1: Not to my knowledge, but I mean, one thing that is becoming more widely used in ag is sprayer by drone, right? So they have they have drone sprayers in ag. I don't see any reason why those can't move in a turf. They're going to be low volume. You can't obviously drag around a 300-gallon tank on a drone. So uh, you just have a small drone with a small, you know, few gallons in there, and you'll go and, and you can pinpoint certain areas uh, to spray that have your heaviest pressure. You can probably program it in a few years, maybe just program it from your desk go off and automatically sprays and, you know, five, six years from now, maybe have a drone tech instead of a spray tech.
0: <laughs> well, once we get the drones, we have to take another break, Paul, because we're, we're <laughs> going to have to get, uh, it's funny. I, I, I immediately imagined the 300 gallon spray rig, uh, on a drone, uh, <laughs> above a golf course, Paul Koch, assistant professor UW Madison. We'll be right back after this message.
2: Golf course superintendents all agree traditional core aeration is time-consuming, labor-intensive, and unpopular with golfers. Dryject is a revolutionary service that relieves compaction, increases water infiltration, improves gas exchange, and amends your root zone all at the same time, leaving the turf surface smooth and immediately playable. Best of all, an independent Dryject service professional does it for you, there and gone before you know it. Dryject, the only process in the world that aerates, top dresses and amends in one pass. Visit DryJex.com to locate your nearest DryJex service center.
0: Okay, Paul Koch, we've been yakking about the summer diseases, the stress. We've talked about the toxicology Uh, of chemicals and the way we're going to use data in the future. And I want to wrap it up with, I know, another area of your research, and that is uh, you can't study pathology in the northern climates where you are if you're not studying the low-temperature diseases, Microdokium patch and the Tifulas. And you'll be surprised that I might even know Ishycariensis and Incarnata. From my days uh, on the faculty in Madison watching Gail Wharf do those trials many years ago. So your work, Paul, more recently has looked at degradation of the products over time. Can you get us up to speed with where you are at with understanding the application of these products and how long they'll last into the season based on your day to date?
1: Yeah, sure. So basically, so the, the studies that we did, we did this was this one part of the study was my PhD work, and then we did a follow up study once I started as a professor here at UW. And these studies sort of emanated from we have we have less continuous snow cover. It seems like you know this you know climate change, whatever you want to have, uh, you want to call it. But we have uh, we have more open ground. It seems like during the winter, so there was concern that during this these periods of open ground, we were we were losing our fungicide, our snowmobile protection. That was that would leave the turf exposed and susceptible to uh, snow mold development. And what we found, basically, in all we probably hell we probably done like eight years of work on this now, going out there and drilling cores during during the winter, killing our backs, all that sort of stuff, <laughs> is that snow melt events and rainfall events during the winter very quickly degrade the fungicide. So if you have a uh, you know a, a mid January rainfall event or a large snow melt event that quickly degrades the fungicide and then you're exposed, your turf is susceptible to potential infection. Now, the, the tricky part then, that, that's kind of straightforward. And we've done that with iprodione, with chlorothalonil, with propiconazole, all have shown basically the same thing. Now, the tricky part is, do you ever need to reapply? For the most part, you don't need to reapply. Because if you're going to have open ground during the winter, you, don't, you aren't normally going to have conditions that are conducive for, for infection. So what we found is that, yeah, they, they, they degrade pretty quickly when you have rainfall events or snowmelt events. Other than that, if you have a long duration snow cover, that fungicide stays throughout almost the entire winter. So it doesn't go anywhere if there's snow cover. But when there is a, a, a snowmelt event or a rainfall event, yeah, that's when we see those fungicides uh, go away pretty quickly. But in most cases, we haven't seen the need to go out and reapply a situation where you might need to reapply would be if you apply let's say you apply on November 24th and then you know December 2nd you have a an inch of rainfall that may be a case you're going to have a, you're going to have a whole winter ahead of you without any protection that may be a case where you go out and you need to re, need to reapply
0: how much of this is predicated on how long chlorothalonil persists in a lot of these trials i got to believe that some of your best snow mold treatments have chlorothalonil as a cornerstone First, correct me if I'm wrong, is that true? And if it's true, is chlorothalonil the one that we're really wanting and hoping persists?
1: Chlorothalonil does persist a little bit longer, uh, but not a lot, so compared to Iperdown and propiconazole. So chlorothalonil does stick a little bit uh, a longer than the other two, but not a lot. So it's not like a drastic state sticks around for a couple of months. Uh, inclusion of you know uh, of Daconil, inclusion of other kind of persistent chemicals like a PCNB, uh um or or similar products like that those will persist a little bit longer relative to some of the other products that will wash out of the plant a little bit easier but it's not drastic it's not a drastic it's it's sticking around three months while the other products are sticking around a couple of weeks so it still does degrade relatively quickly in the presence of snowmelt or rainfall uh in those winter conditions but it does persist a little bit longer
0: If you didn't treat with snow mold last uh, winter, the winter of 1718, would the average golf course, even in the worst snow mold areas, have lost any turf?
1: Oh, so it depends on where you were at last winter, right? We had almost no snow cover on the ground. We had a huge cold snap around Christmas. Large part of the country had that big cold snap. And so if you only had, you know, a couple inches of snow on the ground, that's, that froze out the fungi, and you had really no snow well developed on your plants that year. If you go sort of to the northern third of the state, they had a good six, seven inches on the snow by that point in time, and they had that big cold snap, and they had tremendous amounts of of snow mold come spring. Mm-hmm. I will also say it probably depends whether you, whether you're going to lose turf or not it depends on what kind of fungus you have. If it's Microdochium or whether it's incarnata, you're not going to lose a lot of turf. Turf is going to look ugly. It's going to take a, a while to come back, but it will eventually recover back into those scarred areas. Ischaquarius though, that's a fungus that can easily infect the crown. We have seen significant turf loss due to significant uh, Ischaquarius infection. So it depends on. Partly on the pathogen that you have in your course,
0: and ishikariensis. I'm assuming is you got to have thirty plus days of snow cover, or are both the tifulas related to persistent snow cover?
1: Typically, I mean, this is there's a there's a lot of leeway here, but typically we say you need about sixty days or more snow cover to get incarnata. That we've seen incarnata develop with less than that, and then three or more months, ninety or more days with ishikariensis to really get or of snow cover to get the ischicariensis development. So yeah, ishikariensis confined to the really the really uh, heavy snowy areas, northern Great Lakes, uh, snow belt lake effect areas, Rocky Mountain West. Those are the areas that see a lot of ishikariensis.
0: In those years when you get that ischicariensis pressure that's going to get into the crown, I'm assuming there still are some really good uh, fungicide programs that cover you.
1: Yes. Yep. A lot of good treatments. Typically, they all have mixtures of at least three active ingredients from three different classes. So, you know, a DMI, I, I typically say DMIs as a, as a rule are the best class against uh, the typical fungi, but you also want a couple other classes. So maybe a Daconil or a Secure or an Ipridione or a, or a Strobilurin. urine, you want to mix, mix your classes. There's no single one active ingredient that's gonna give you good protection uh, under heavy snowmobile pressure, so always mix.
0: Are you seeing a shift in change in pressure from tifula to microdokium as the climates are changing uh, in your neck of the woods? I mean, we're—I we're, I wouldn't say we're
1: seeing a shift. We, I mean, we we do see a little bit more microdokium, but we, we just generally have seen less snow mold. Um You know, it, typically in winters, at least in Wisconsin, if we don't have the snow cover, the ground gets too cold. It's kind of counterintuitive to think about, but if we have you know, kind of a more mild winter here in Wisconsin. That means we're going to have less snow cover or, or less uh, sh- a shallower depth of snow cover, which means that when we do get our ine- inevitable cold snaps, it's going to freeze the ground hard. And when we freeze the ground hard, we, do, we see a lot less snow mold. So it's kind of counterintuitive, but warmer winters lead to less snow cover, which leads to more frozen ground. Which then leads to less snow
0: mold as a whole. It's interesting because I was visiting uh, Clint and Alec and Brian out in Oregon State, and you know that is the Microdochium capital world out there. Oh, I know, I love it. And (laughs) and and uh, you're exactly right. I I they they basically have Microdochium pressure essentially for all but two months of July and August, and those are the months when they're worried about anthracnose. So it's very interesting to hear you say that the open winters is helping you with the Microdochium as well as just less snow mold in general, but do you ever imagine we're going to change the way we treat our foliar pathogens in the winter, or do you always think we're probably going to put down protection and then wait for the spring?
1: Well, it depends on how much risk you can tolerate. I generally think, especially for the lower Great Lakes, uh, we probably put down too much protection. I think we can get away with a lot less. I would say maybe one year out of the last five or six for the Southern Great Lakes has been a significant snow mold year. So I think in most years you can get away with putting out quite a bit less. Now the catch there is, right, nobody wants to be caught lowering the amount of production they have when we do have a more significant snow mold year. So, I mean, what I what I would argue for most superintendents in the southern Great Lakes area is I think you can lower the number of actives you put out on your fairways. Don't mess around with greens, right? No point in doing that. Small area, high value. Mm-hmm. Put out your three-way combo. But then on your fairways, you know, you can play around with going out with, with fewer actives or uh, try and save some money there, and most years you'll be fine. And it's it's a matter of how much risk are you comfortable with taking on. If, if you're not going to sleep all winter because you might develop snow mold in your fairways, well, hell, just spend the money go out and, and spray your three-way combo across the entire course. But this is another thing where check plots are a great thing to do during the winter. They're a great thing to do all year, but especially during the winter. And if you go out to your check plot and you see... Three, four, five years in a row, you don't see any snowball in that check plot. Well, then, you know, maybe you don't need quite as much protection mm-hmm. and draw that back and, and, and find an area and, and experiment with it. on maybe, you know, your driving range nursery or a hole or two or something like that. But, yeah, I think I think in general, we can we can put out less product as these these winters get warmer and we have less snow cover. I think most superintendents can get away with less on their fairways.
0: Well, Paul, it is always such a joy chatting with you. Paul Koch, assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in the great state of Wisconsin. Thanks for joining me, Paul. Appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Frank. Love it. We'll be right back with final thoughts on this episode of Frankly Speaking. As usual, a lively and far-reaching conversation with Paul Koch, our turfgrass pathologist expert at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Paul is really on the cutting edge trying to help superintendents learn effective ways of modeling risk and determining the effective timing of fungicide use because when you start looking at pesticide use from an environmental impact perspective, his additional work with the environmental impact quotient is tying these two very important data-driven practices into the mainstream for the modern turf grass manager. Understanding the risk your turf is under and then making the most environmental. Responsible choice for that pest problem that both meets the needs of the client and keeps the environment safe. We're really pleased that Paul joins us regularly on Frankly Speaking and we'll look forward to having him back again. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining.